0: As we were singing, I was reminded that so much of our singing reminds us of what we already know and what we already believe and already trust in, but we need to rehearse it to ourselves and preach it to each other. We need to remind ourselves and preach to each other what's true and what God has said and what He's done and what He said He will do. We've all sinned this week. And to different degrees, we feel our guilt. But if we believe in Jesus for salvation, then we need to sing again as we did. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. To me. Each of us has faced different trials or disappointments, distresses, or dilemmas this week. I don't know about you, but hardly a week goes by where I don't feel as though this is a dry and thirsty land and I am dry and desperate in it. And so I need to keep singing, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock to shield me in this dry and thirsty land. While our calendars feel like they are barreling towards the end of each week with increasing speed, To be with Jesus, to get home to him, I think for anyone my age or younger, that seems like a long ways off. Then again, some of us, whether old or young, are not all that eager for Jesus to return. So when death seems scary, or when Christ's return seems far off in the infinite future, we need to remind ourselves we will meet him in the clouds someday, and we'll shout about perfect salvation and wonderful love with millions, if not billions, of others. Oh, how we need reminding, reflecting, realizing, and being refreshed and renewed by old truth, especially these days. We live in uncertain, troubling days. God's ways are often mysterious, but there are some seasons where we find ourselves wondering more than other seasons. What is God up to? Where is he these days? Won't he soon intervene? Is he going to really let us as a nation, as a culture, go on doing stupid stuff and being stupid people? Of course, this horribly embarrassing election is what some of us will think of when I say that. But it's not just a selection. It's the 1 million or so abortions that we've averaged every year in this country since 1973. It is the seemingly boundless sexualization and objectification in our culture. Of course, it's also the terrorism, the racial tension, the injustices, the fatherlessness, the spinelessness of some professing Christian leaders who will poo-poo serious sin in order to maintain some political currency. It's even the frivolous voyeurism of staying up to date on the minutiae of Kim Kardashian's robbery. You might wonder, as I do, what will become of a people who continue down these paths? You might wonder, as I do, what will become of God's people who are surrounded by these sins and even partake of them as well at times? What is God up to? Will he not step in? How long, O Lord? How bad will it get? Can it get any worse? Well, if any of that resonates with you today, then we might find some help. Yes, in the songs we've already sung, and the truth we've already experienced this morning, but also through the book of Habakkuk. Would you turn there in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk? It's about five or six books short of the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk itself is short, just three chapters long, and today we'll focus on its last chapter, chapter 3. Why Habakkuk 3 this morning? Well, because I said it is timely for what's going on today, socially, culturally, politically, and otherwise. But it's also timely for me personally personally. This past week, 45 or so pastors were here in this building meeting together for a workshop on biblical exposition. The Simeon Trust workshop, which we host every year, was just this past week. And this year we focused on texts in Habakkuk and Malachi. And I had to prepare a simple, short presentation on Habakkuk 3 back on Tuesday of this week, and it got me just Itching to do more than just a short presentation on the first few steps of sermon prep. That's what I did on Tuesday. That was enough to put it in me like, uh, well, like the message Jeremiah had when he got something from the Lord. He said, it was like a fire in my bones and I couldn't hold it in. Before I read our passage, let me give you a very quick rundown of what preceded. Habakkuk 3, because there are two other chapters, of course, that came before. Habakkuk is a book about a prophet conversing with God. It's a conversation. The prophet begins by praying to God, asking him, Why don't you intervene? How long will you wait? Do you see? God's people, he says, are being wicked, they are violent, there's injustice in the land. And those who are truly righteous are being persecuted. So what's the deal, Lord? That's the first four verses of Habakkuk. It begins with lament. And God responds, starting in verse 5. Be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God explains to Habakkuk that he is actually going to use the Chaldeans, a.k.a. the Babylonians, to discipline his people. That famously fierce and wicked conquering nation would be used by a righteous God to discipline his chosen people. So Habakkuk responds to God then in verse 12 and following. And here he's not lamenting before God anymore. Now he's wrestling with God. Because he has beliefs about God, that God is holy and righteous and pure, that don't seem to gel with God using the wicked Chaldeans as an instrument for discipline against God's people. That culminates in chapter 2, verse 1, where Habakkuk gives up talking to God and climbs into a watchtower to wait for God to answer. And in due course, God does. He answers again. He says, in part, the righteous have to live in faith. They have to walk by faith. God says that he will indeed Judge the Babylonians in due time. And God can use the Babylonians for his people's discipline and discipline them after it and still be righteous and just altogether. He says that his plan is going towards this. Chapter 2, verse 14. Would you look there? Chapter 2, verse 14, God says the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Habakkuk, none of the present or soon coming circumstances threaten my glory, but are instead part of my glorious plan, which will eventually lead to universal glory, complete worship, a whole new creation, one not bent towards sin, but completely bent towards the Lord. God's speech ends with silence at the end of chapter two. He calls on the whole earth to be silent before him. And now in chapter three, we come to Habakkuk's final response in this conversation. And his final response is a song. Notice that, verse 3 and verse 9, verse 13, we see that familiar word that's in the psalm so much, selah, and it might mean pause, it might mean something else, we're not really sure, but we do know it's related to, to songs. We also see at the end of chapter 3, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is a song, a personal song, drawn out of personal experience for Habakkuk, but also written and shared for God's people to sing. What should they sing? This, Habakkuk 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him was pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath? Against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped a sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. I hear, and my body trembles. and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. By way of example, I think Habakkuk models for us at least. Five things. First, to respond to God's word with humble prayer. In the opening verses of this chapter, he responds to God's word with humble prayer. God has spoken. And when God speaks, we might be troubled by it. We might wrestle with it. If we need to wrestle with it, then we talk to him about it. but eventually we need to respond in humility and acceptance. Habakkuk responds with fear, verse 2, or holy awe. He acknowledges what God has said and what he's known about God's work in ages past. And based on what God has said and what he's known about what God has done, Habakkuk asks God three humble things. Verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Revive your work. I've heard about your work of old. In the midst of these years, in the midst of my life, in these times, in these days, revive your work. In the midst of these years, make it known. Make your works known, not hidden, not secret, not behind the scenes. And in wrath, remember mercy. Now, wrath is probably not the best translation here at this point. Not because we're trying to get out of the Bible saying wrath. It's just the word here is not usually translated wrath in the Bible. And it's usually not translated wrath in chapter 3. Three other times in chapter 3, the same Hebrew word is used And three other times, it's translated tremble. I'll let you go look for those on your own. But tremble is a better word. In all this trembling, remember mercy, Lord. In all this tumult, be merciful to us, O God. So here is a threefold prayer we can pray at any time about almost anything. Chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, what you did in ages past, do it again. Lord, what you're doing behind the scenes, make it known. Lord, in all this shaking and trembling and tumult in this world, oh be merciful. In your discipline, be gentle, please. Secondly, a second lesson, recall those times of old when God showed up. Verses 3 through 8, recall those times of old when God showed up on the scene. He says in verse 3, God came. And from here on out, he paints a portrait of God on the move. He came, verse 8, you rode, verse 12, you marched, verse 13, you went out. It's a portrait of some of those times of old in the Old Testament when God showed up in great power and glory, like at Mount Sinai. I think that's what verse 3 is talking about. When God came from Taman, from Mount Paran, Taman was a city near Mount Sinai. Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai. This is talking about that scene in Exodus 20 when God showed up on a mountain with Moses giving him the Ten Commandments. If we look back to Exodus 20, we might see that it resembles what Habakkuk says here in verse four, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Or how about those days when in Egypt God showed his power and glory. Like it talks about in verse 5 of Habakkuk 3. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Verse 6 speaks of various earthquakes. Like no doubt happened at Mount Sinai. But also at Jericho when the walls came tumbling down, mountains and hills bow before this God when he shows up. Verse 8 ponders God's power over the waters, which he showed so powerfully at the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. Verse 8 asks, probably what's a rhetorical question, a question which actually Habakkuk will answer for himself later on. But here's the question in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Of course, the answer is no. The parting of the Red Sea was not God's hatred of the Red Sea. He'll explain what it is a little bit later on. For right now, he's content to simply record for us What happened? What happened? Do you believe this stuff happened? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London about 50 years ago, he said this, if God did not actually do the things recorded in the Old Testament, when the whole Bible, then the whole Bible, may be just a, a piece of psychology meant to keep us happy. The Bible, however, plainly shows that my comfort and consolation lie in facts. The fact that God has done certain things and that they literally happened. The God in whom I believe is the God who could and did divide the Red Sea and the River Jordan in reminding himself and us of these things. Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas. He's speaking of the things that God has actually done The Christian faith is solidly based upon facts, not ideas, and if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort, for we are not saved by ideas, but facts and events. I couldn't agree more. We need to recall those times of old when God showed up in great power and in glory. Do you see what Habakkuk is doing as he mingles the requests of verse 2 in with remembrance in verse 3 and following. Verse 2 said, I've heard of your work, O Lord. Before he describes that work in verse 3 and following, he asks, Lord, in our day, revive it. Do it again. In our day, make it known. Make it visible. In all these tremblings, remember your mercy. He's recounting God's highlight reel for the purpose of his own faith and encouragement and hope and as somewhat of a prayer request as he recounts back to God what he's done, he's also asking God to do it again. He's asking God to show up just as God has already said in this book that he would. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, He said he'll come. Chapter 2, verse 16, God said he's coming. Habakkuk's been wrestling with that. He started out by asking where God was. Then God said, he's coming. He's coming via the Babylonians. Habakkuk then said, hold on, not so fast. I want you to come. I don't want you to come riding them. You can't ride them, can you? Then God spoke once more about his coming global glory and that all the earth must shut up before him. So now, in bold faith, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I fear, but come. I know verse three of Habakkuk three is put in past tense. In fact, this whole prayer song, if you notice, is put in past tense in our, English, in our English Bibles. God came, he was like, he went, that's all past tense. But in the Hebrew, tense is a little more fluid than that. It's not like in our English, there's past and present and future and that's it, they all mean what they mean. Past tense in Hebrew can be describing something of old, with present and future implications. It's as if Habakkuk is saying, God, you came, so come again. God, just as you came in days of old, come today. You see the relevance for us? We're a people who, like Habakkuk, are waiting. We say, God, come. And we better know what that means. You don't come to that position easily. But the righteous walk by faith. And as they walk by faith, they recount and recall God's acts of great power and glory in order to remind themselves of what kind of God they have, what kind of God they talk to and serve. They need to remind themselves what can happen when God shows up he turns things upside down sometimes. They need to remind themselves that God is not yet done. And he will show up again. And so they ask him to do it. To come. Thirdly, Habakkuk teaches us to reflect on God's purposes for showing up. Up till verse 8, he's told us that God shows up. And what happens when God shows up? He hasn't yet told us Why God shows up, but he does starting in verse 9. God is a warrior. You stripped the sheath from your bow and called for many arrows. Verses 10 and 11 show that even creation surrenders to this warrior creator. The waters ran away, verse 10. The deep lifted up its hands. In surrender. One look at his arrows or his glittering spear, verse 11 says, and the sun and the moon stood still. Of course, as we already said, as verse 8 already implied, God wasn't angry with his creation, sun, moon, stars, waters, or mountains. But when he shows up, there's cataclysmic upheaval. If this sounds scary to you, it's because God shows up in judgment, in judgment. Why does God show up? Well, he's shown up before in judgment. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. The whole exodus affair from being in Egypt through the Red Sea was not simply to show off for his people or for the other nations. God was destroying a very wicked people in order, in order to save and make for himself what would eventually possibly be through a Messiah a righteous people. He shows up in judgment but not just judgment. Verse 13 you went out for the salvation of your people. So this is the pattern time and time again. When God shows up, he shows up in judgment and in salvation. Whether it's Egypt or the Passover or the Red Sea or Jericho or you just named the battle of 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or Chronicles, God shows up in judgment and salvation. Salvation for his people And for his anointed. Verse 13, for the salvation of your people and for the salvation of your anointed. This anointed is referring to the Davidic king. The Lord saves his anointed. Just think how many times God saved King David from the enemy. Just think of how faithful God was to preserve that Davidic line through all of its ups and downs and threats. That Davidic line to whom was given such eternal and global promises in 2 Samuel 7, of course, needed to be sustained by the God who gave those promises. At times, that Davidic kingship looked rather bleak. Looked wicked, small, threatened. It sure did in Habakkuk's day. The Chaldeans are coming and they're going to lay waste of Jerusalem, its throne, its temple, and its king. At the time, as Habakkuk got this information, he had no idea how big a deal this anointed thing would be in God's plan. From our vantage point, we know the Anointed is ultimately that final promised Davidic king for whom all of the previous promises were true and then were fulfilled. We're talking about Jesus here. Anointed is one translation, Messiah is another, Christ is another still. Christ. That's not Jesus' last name. That's his title, Messiah, King, Anointed. Mary was told, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a Davidic king. He's the king. He's the Christ, the Lord. Matthew begins his account of Jesus with a genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. So in Jesus, God came. He came. He showed up. He showed up in the flesh for the salvation of his people. And for the salvation of his anointed? Does that apply to Jesus? Well, maybe not quite the same way that it might apply to David or other kings like him, but remember how Herod would have killed all of the young male babies, including Jesus, except that an angel told Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt, and he was saved. You say, well, what about the cross? That was God's plan all along, and God saved him from death by going through death. Sure, it looked like defeat as the anointed hung on a cursed cross. But the resurrection proved this is the Lord's anointed and the Lord saves his anointed. And more than that, the Lord was not just saving his anointed, but through the cross and resurrection, he was saving his people. It all comes together in Jesus. Habakkuk's prayer song recounted what God did of old, asked him to revive it and do it again, and that prayer was answered by God to the nth degree in Jesus. Habakkuk couldn't have possibly known all that we know now about the Lord's anointed and the salvation of his people. But my, how far did Habakkuk see Notice, he didn't just look to Babylon's demise and a happy ending afterwards, his people's redemption. He looked actually to our day, our era. And he even looked beyond our own day. That leads us fourthly to this lesson, to realize the present and future implications as we wait. We need to realize The present and future implications for Habakkuk and for us. For his day and for ours. He could say in verse 13, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Now in Habakkuk's own day, the present and near future implications were simply that eventually Babylon would be defeated. And the king of Babylon with all of Babylon. God had already promised that back in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. But from our vantage point, we know that Habakkuk spoke better than he knew. From our vantage point, we can say it is no coincidence that verse 13 introduced us to God saving his anointed and saving his people there at with the anointed. And then he immediately turned to these cosmic Victories that happen at Jesus' first coming and his second coming. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Now, who is the highest head of the house of the wicked? It's no Babylonian king. It's Satan. This is the first gospel back in Genesis 3.15. The promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Habakkuk can state the crushing of the head of the house of the wicked in past tense, even though it's still future to him, because it's as good as done, just as it is for us. Satan has been crushed. This is what he did in the cross and resurrection. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame, triumphing over them. Or Hebrews 2, through death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that's the devil. Or as it says here in Habakkuk 3, verse 14, that God pierced the enemy with his own arrows. Metaphorically, you just can't help but think of How Jesus defeated death by death. He defeated sin at the hands of sinners. What a glorious salvation we have. Amy read for us earlier in our service from Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now we rejoice in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is true for all those who believe it to be true and call out to God for it. For all who believe that they need this. They need God's mercy. They need a Savior. They need someone to pay the price for their sins and believe that Jesus is God's answer And hence, your only solution, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Would you be saved today? Maybe you've mocked that word before. Oh, he's saved. That guy's born again, whatever that means. It means you're an extra weird Christian if you're born again. That's how it sounds in the culture. I can't blame you at all for wondering whether that's the case. But in the Bible, born again simply means born anew. Not starting over to try to do better, but born of God and into his kingdom and of his world, being adopted by him and now of his family and not the head of the house of the wicked, which is where all of us were born Come to Jesus today. And get this, amazingly, Jesus' Satan-conquering power actually extends to all who believe in him and follow him. This is crazy. Like in Luke 10, when the 70 disciples returned after preaching and casting out demons, Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven when you guys were doing that. I give you authority over all serpents and all authorities wicked ones in Romans 16 Paul could say the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet (laughs) what it seems like too much power for me and yet as we've already seen Habakkuk's prayer looks beyond our day because uh, 1 Peter 5 eight that the devil is still like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's like this serpent has its head cut off, but it's still trying to bite and bite and bite. And so on the one hand, be on guard. It doesn't look quite dead. On the other hand, know that it is as good as done. The battle has been won. So realize the present and future implications of Habakkuk's glorious prayer song. So after walking through a vision which extends from his time to the end of time, Habakkuk then returns to his own here and now. Lastly... The fifth lesson, reel, rejoice, and be renewed before this God now. Verses 16 and following show us these lessons. The first is reeling. I hear, he says, my body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness has entered my bones, my legs tremble. You see, the Babylonians are still coming. He's had this great encounter with God And come to some understanding about God. Gotten to some peace with God. But the Babylonians are still coming. And it's going to be fierce and painful and disorienting. It's going to look like an undoing of the conquest that happened under Joshua. And an undoing of all the victories that happened under King David. Yet, he says. I will quietly wait. I'll quietly wait. Not just for the day of trouble that's coming upon us, but beyond that, the, the day of trouble that will come upon the people who will invade us. God has promised both. Judgment to Judah and more serious judgment afterwards to Babylon. Judgment, in Israel's case, is simply chastisement for them. Judgment, in Babylon's case, will mean their undoing and destruction. He again, in verse 17, ponders what it's going to be like when they come. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and there's no produce of the olive, the yields yield no fruit, fruit. the flock be cut off from the field, there's no herd in the stalls, that's what's coming. Barrenness, death, destruction for 70 long years. Yet, verse 18, notice there are two yet's here. You should circle them in your Bible. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He reels at the news of God coming in discipline through the fierce Chaldeans but he waits quietly he ponders what it looks like there on Jerusalem's ground yet he'll rejoice he'll take joy in the God of my salvation when you can take joy in nothing else you can take joy in God not God as some distant being, not God as some warrior destroyer who is only to be feared, in the God of my salvation. And he takes it one step further in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He's not only out there and doing certain things and planning things out. He's my salvation. That's just not about the end, but it's today. He's my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. So, in the end, Habakkuk is renewed. He goes from reeling to rejoicing and being renewed. I have a few questions for introspection as we start to wrap this up. I wonder, going back to the beginning, Are you troubled by sin and violence and injustice in this world around you? Are you troubled? Learn from Habakkuk. He was. He wasn't wrong to say, How long, O Lord, and do you see? That's called biblical lament. It's all over. Are you going to God in lament? as you mourn sin, injustice, and violence in this world around you? It's one thing to lament it. It's one thing to be ticked off about it. It's another thing to bring it to God and talk to him about it. Are you hearing and considering what God says? Oh, we might not get a, we probably won't get a word from the Lord like Habakkuk the prophet did, but we have his word and we got to go to it. we got to read it. we got to hear it preached. Are you? When you have questions about what God is up to in this world, where do you go for answers? Well, there's only one place you can go. His Word. Christian, when you're troubled by what God has said in His Word, or by what God has purposely left out of his word. Do you talk to God about it? Whenever God's word comes to us, no matter our natural response, we must take God's word back to him and talk to him about it. Whether that's in thanks and praise, or whether that's in honest struggle and asking for his help. Christian, when God's ways are mysterious and he has only given you a few headlines about what he's up to, can you relent your questions? Can you accept what he said? Can you take on the assignment he's given for the righteous? They live by faith. That's it. They live by faith. When God chastises his people, which by the way, he still does today, I wonder, will you buckle under it? Will you push against it? Or, having wrestled with it, come out the other side, humbly receiving it, only asking that he be gentle while he does it. This is the life of faith. And when we're in doubt, we need to look to his highlight reel of his great acts of power and glory of old. Those times when he showed up. Keep going back to the exodus. Keep going back to the exile. Keep going back to the cross and resurrection above all else. And live in light now of this God and what he's done in ages past. Oh God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come. We should know and believe that he is not done. And he will show up again. He will make all things right. He will finish off Satan and all his minions. He will bring about the final and full salvation of all his people of all time, of all nations. And judgment for the rest. When God shows up, he shows up in judgment and salvation. Friend, I have to ask again, Do you want God to show up? Do you know what that would mean for you if God showed up? I hear so much of the world say, well, where was God when? And I want to say, I don't think you want him to show up, friend. I don't think you're ready for him to come back. Judgment's coming. Come to him today through Jesus that you might join us In that glorious hope of one day, a world where glory covers it like waters cover sea. Last time I checked, waters cover the sea completely. What a day that will be. One day, glory filling the earth. We're not there yet. So in the meantime, we should expect that life will be bitter and sweet At times we will tremble and shake and be sick to our stomachs. Yet we must choose to wait quietly. At times we will experience barrenness and dryness and harshness all around. Yet we must choose to rejoice in our God, the God of our salvation. It is this God... The God before whom mountains bow and seas surrender and Satan is crushed. That God is not only your salvation. Christian, he's your strength. He's enough strength even when you don't feel it. He can make us leap like a deer even in the most ominous of days. So where are you in this Habakkuk progression? Back in chapter 1, God, where are you? Are you in the watchtower, a little discontent with his first answer, waiting for more? Are you looking back in faith to those deeds of old that show his power and glory and asking him to do it again? Are you in light of that trembling but nothing else? Have you moved from trembling to rejoicing to resting and being revived in him? Well, wherever you are, you need to sing. To the choir master, he said. With stringed instruments, God's people need to sing. When they're wrestling to walk by faith, when they need encouragement to do so, they sing. When this world seems violent and out of control and unjust and confusing, you know what God's people do? They get together and they sing. So let me pray, and then we'll sing. Oh, Lord... You have done great things. Help us to ponder those great things more. To live in light of them day by day. Help us, Lord, to walk in faith. Believing what you did, you will do and more so. What you have promised, what you have said, It will come about, in more than we could even understand if you told us it all. We thank you for what you have done. We give you praise for it today. We pray, Lord, once again, that others would join us in giving you glory through Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King, the Creator, and the coming Warrior. We pray and we long for that day when your glory covers this world like waters cover the sea. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, give us, give us your truth and give us your worship and give us your joy Is only you can do. Amen.